0: This is the last uh, talk that I am giving um, on the uh, on on the doctrines of grace on Calvinism uh, predestination all of that uh, again just to remind you I know it is every time but particularly it's more for the recordings than anything um, that every may i um, I take up a a topic that um we we get a lot of questions about at our church and i do my best to present a thorough um presentation on that um and so we just shut down adult sunday school and i and i teach and uh this this year we're doing predestination and the first week we we looked at uh cultural context and its implications on this, basically asking the question, why is it so hard for us to believe this doctrine? Uh, The second week, we took a systematic approach to it. We looked at um, the five points of Calvinism um, as a summation of this doctrine. Um, The third week, we took a more biblical, exegetical approach to it. We, uh, We opened up Romans 9 and just spent the whole time looking at that together and doing work with that passage. Last week, um, we dealt with objections to um, this doctrine, the system of doctrine, and um, did our best in the limited time we had to, uh, to to look at some of those objections and try to deal with them honestly and, and charitably. Uh, this final week, I want to end an application. Um, the, the doctrine of predestination. I would say if you were to... Mm, the biggest dilemma with the doctrine of predestination is for it to get out of the arena of your mind and a fun um, intellectual exercise that you get to do to scratch your curiosity and for it to it, to seat down into your life and overflow into your life. Because truly the, the uh, applications and implications of such a high and, and mysterious doctrine is meant to... Uh, ...is meant to transform your life. And so I want to talk about that today. I want to talk about the applications of predestination. Let me start by um, reading an old um, hymn... um, ...an old Calvinist hymn... ...and I'm going to offer this as the antithesis... ...of how you are supposed to respond to Calvinism. Uh, This is a... uh, ...thankfully this is not a Presbyterian Calvinist hymn... ...this is a Baptist Calvinist hymn... Um, (laughs) But this is, this is a true hymn. Here's, here is a, here's a stanza. We are the chosen few, let all the rest be damned. There's room enough in hell for you, we won't have heaven crammed. Yeah. So, um, that's not how the Bible wants you to... To respond to this doctrine, and this does bring me to an important point. if you can articulate and many of you can um, this room has been fun to see this room has been kind of halfway divided between me preaching to the choir um, who those of you who have been around TCPC and you've uh, you 've done the Ligonier conference and you 've read the scroll books and the piper books and all this stuff and so You just like having a person stand up here and talk about what you like to talk about. preaching the choir. And listen, there's there's room for that. There's room for us to celebrate our distinctives that we love. And then there's also been, I would say the other half is people who are new to TCPC... ...who are saying, you believe what? And and genuinely are here to learn what it is you believe. Um, I would say that maybe this one is directed to the choir not not Ted's part, but to, to our people who love this doctrine and um, can teach this art doctrine and can articulate this doctrine, perhaps some of you even better than I can. Um, and to those of you who um, are kind of outsiders and are new to TCPC and, and not necessarily immersed in this, and this is kind of your first taste of it, um, I would like for you to judge... Um, the doctrine of Calvinism equally based upon what I say today as I have as I've done the doctrinal stuff. In other words, as I rebuke our people, enjoy it. <laughs> as maybe some things you've seen in, in Calvinist communities before that have driven you crazy and stuff that we have to own and repent of. Um, but based... Accept or reject this based upon Scripture first, and then fruit of doctrine. And I think, sadly, we haven't done a good job of giving you good fruit that comes from this. And that can't be separated. If you can articulate this theology better than anyone here, but you are not practicing this theology, then you are a bad theologian. Did you know that? Did you know that, that the ethos of our theology is, is equally as important as the precision of our theology? Did you know that what, the rightness of what you say and the way you communicate it are equally important to God? It truly is. You only have to turn to, uh, to uh, um, 1 Corinthians 13 and say, Look, if, if you can speak with angelic voices and have not love, you're, you sound like a clanging cymbal. So I would say, if you can articulate Calvinism with the precision of the reformers and have not love, have not become humbled by the doctrine, have not, this doctrine has not overflowed into your life, then, then, then spare me your, your brilliance. Because doctrine and practice cannot be separated in Scripture. So um, I, think we, I, think, I think we need to talk about application and here's what I'm going to say. Here's how I'm going to come at it. Calvinist should be, should be is the key word, worshipful yet practical, humble yet confident, resting yet laboring. So these two tensions that we're going to go through. We should be people who are worshipful yet very practical, humble yet confident, resting yet laboring. Let's go through each of those. Worshipful yet Practical. The first application of the doctrine of God's sovereign election is worship. And that is explicitly stated in the Scriptures. No, no doubt about it, Ephesians 1, the summary of that chapter is... ...God chose you unto the praise of His glorious grace. He saved you that you might worship Him. He chose you that you might worship Him. From beginning to end, He does it all for His own glory. And so the first application of a God who does it all in our salvation, is that we would praise Him. And what I love about Reformed theology, at least this is the way it's worked for me, and I've seen it happen for many other people, is when you get into it and you start to see it and the Scriptures start unfolding in that way and and you start viewing God this way, often what happens is it does lead to a deeper ...more humble, more passionate worship of our great and glorious God. When you begin to see a God-centered vision of God... ...who does all things for His own glory... ...not you... ...who, who before the foundations of the world chooses His people... ...you think that when you grasp that... If, it, ...if it's thinking like according to the way our minds naturally think... ...we think that by grasping that we should not worship God... ...but every time the opposite happens... I remember when um, I, I became a Christian when um, in 1998 um, senior, senior, after my senior year of high school, I went off to college as a freshman in college in '98, and somebody flippantly just randomly in, in, in invited me to go to a conference, which it was kind of one of the first ones that these hosted now thousands of college students have since gone to them. There are these passion conferences. and so I went to the 1998 Passion conference and um, and every year they have Piper preach at these. And, and John Piper preached, and it was just vintage Piper, you know, God exalting, God's glory, all that stuff. and All that stuff. I mean, the, it's awesome stuff, glorious stuff. Um, but I remember him getting done preaching and, set, and, 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 and just kind of being like flattened in my seat and, by, by the glory of God. And I remember thinking to myself, man, this Christianity thing's been kind of fun. Became a Christian, I got this newfound joy, this new peace, I'm loving this. You know, I'm wearing WWJD bracelets and all that stuff. This is cool. And then I, was, I remember thinking, whoa, I've never heard God talked about like that. And when I started immersing myself in this stuff, it led to the deepest, most profound exalting view of our God that is so high and so glorious and overflows into praise. And that's what it's intended to do. Please listen to me. The ultimate end of your election is praise. If it is true, from beginning to end, it was Him, then how can we keep from singing? How can we not worship Him? How can praise not overflow from our lives? How can we ever grumble and complain against our God if He has sovereignly done this in our lives? So the first application is the most obvious and appropriate application. It is to worship the God of grace. To praise the God of our sovereign salvation. But listen, oftentimes it ends there with worship. Worshipful. And people are very familiar with that application. And I would just say on the other extreme... I would say people who are incredibly practical. And here's what I mean by that. It's not just this high, ethereal, give God praise... ...but it overflows into practical praise in our lives. It's fascinating the way Paul ends his whole excursion on election. We looked at Romans 9, but it continues through Romans 10 and Romans 11. I'm actually talking about some of that stuff in my sermon this morning. And he ends the whole thing with this high doxology... You've heard it many times. Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments. How inscrutable are His ways. This is worship, right? He's responding to the doctrine of God's divine election. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been His counselor? Or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him, through Him, and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory. Worship, worship, worship. To Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. That's the end of Romans 11. Romans 12, verse 1. You know that verse, don't you? A lot of you do. Here's his application of worship. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, therefore, I appeal to you... ...by the mercies of God, by the free mercies of God... ...present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God... ...which is your spiritual act of worship. And here's the connection. He has won you over in this high and exalted doctrine of election and and we overflows into from him through him to him be all glory he did it all and then Paul says you're right now offer your if he did it all he owns you give it to him in praise don't just worship him in this i give him thanks in some ethereal way no no you praise him with all of you all of your life now belongs to him In other words, what I'm trying to say is predestination is incredibly practical. Incredibly practical. What does it mean to be a father, a mother, an employee, an employer? To do leisure. What does it mean to do that underneath the reality that you were a hell-bound sinner who deserves nothing and God before the foundations of the world grabbed you and made you his own? What does that do to your life? How does that transform the way you go about life? How do you worship him with the way you live your life? It overflows into very practical ways. So we're having one of those days where it's just messy and I'm overwhelmed and I come home. And I've got kids that want to play and I'm exhausted and chores to do and a list of things that Abby's want me to do that i got to get done and all this stuff and I'm exhausted and all I want to do is complain about my life. Before the foundations of the world, God chose you, sinner. Made you his own. Made you come alive in Christ. Justified you, Is sanctifying you, shall glorify you. Who do you think you are? complaining about a house that's a little messy. See what I'm saying? Joy, patience, all of these things that are really truly the fruit of the Holy Spirit overflow from a doctrine of profound sovereign grace in our lives. And so the first response of a Calvinist is to be a person of worship, both how we classically think of worship and practically offer our lives offer our lives as living sacrifices to God. Orthodoxy should lead to orthopraxy in our lives. It should overflow in very real practical ways. It is a doctrine that's supposed to transform the way we go about our lives. So it's worshipful yet practical. Second, humble yet confident. If this is true, if what I have said in weeks one, two, three, and four is true, then please tell me Why you are now a believer in Jesus Christ. You are alive in Jesus Christ and someone else is not. Did you figure something out that they did not figure out? Did you achieve something that others did not? This doctrine says no, nothing. Even your faith, even your choice of God was a gift of God, Ephesians 2, so that no man can boast. There is nothing, there is no difference between you and the most hardened pagan in this world. How can you boast, Christian? I will never understand these Calvinist communities that are filled with so much hubris. And they are. If that isn't a living contradiction, then I don't know what is. And, and honestly, I see them everywhere and Honestly, I've been a part of them. I was obnoxious when I came to the understanding of this doctrine. Obnoxious. Should have caged me up. <laughs> I took a doctrine that was meant to humble me and turned it into my boast. So what this means is... I. I don't care if you can articulate the doctrine. I don't care if you've read all the books and have gone to all the conferences. I don't care if you can win the debate. If it has not overflowed to humility, then I'll speak, I'll speak extreme here. If it is has not over, over, overflown into humility, then you don't know the first thing about predestination. Maybe you know the first things. Maybe it's beginning. But you don't understand predestination. A proud Calvinist is the definition of an oxymoron. So, I would say this. Part of the problem is that we're stuck because how do you pursue humility? Okay, boy, I'm convicted. I've been a proud Calvinist. Where should I go? How can I find humility? Where should I turn? Where should a proud Calvinist turn for humility? I would suggest Calvinism. But but get it out of this compartmentalized arena of theory and idea and actually see yourself in it. A dead sinner, a child of wrath, with no hope. And when I say no hope, total privacy says no hope. See yourself as that and let it terrify you. And then see your God who before the foundations of the world for reasons that belong belong only to the counsel of his free and sovereign will decided in the name of sheer grace and nothing else to save you. From beginning to end, he did it through you, though you did not deserve one step. And you dare boast. I guess what I'm trying to say is get out of idea and get it into your life. See yourself within the system of TULIP. Not as a classroom discussion, but in the system of TULIP. That you are the totally depraved one. You are the one that he unconditionally elected. You are the one that Christ purchased with particular atonement. You are the one who he came to you with irresistible grace and triumphed over your heart and will. You are the one he will persevere. You are the saint he perseveres to the end. And yet you boast. I boast. Forgive my boasting. Forgive our boasting. So it has to lead to humility, people. And confidence. Humility and confidence. It may humble us. To know that we had nothing to do with our salvation. But it also, it also really should console us. And here's why. If nothing, if it's true, what I said the first four weeks, that nothing you did got you into this. Then nothing you do can get you out of this. You realize that, right? If it is true that salvation is of the Lord, then the, sh- the surety of our salvation rests upon the faithfulness of our God, not us. Predestination ultimately, ultimately means that God didn't choose to love you because of you. That would be conditional election. God did not choose to love you because of you, but because of himself. That's at the heart of this. At first, that doesn't sound very loving, does it? God didn't choose to love you because of you. He chose to love you because of himself, his decrees. At first, that doesn't sound very loving, And it doesn't sound loving because we are so used to defining love by what we have to offer. This is what the world has done to your concepts of love. And it's terrible. We're so used to being loved because of what we have to offer. I am loved because of my looks. I am loved because of my personality. I am loved because of my resume. I am loved because of my power. My whatever I have to offer. That's why I'm loved. And so to be told that God loves you not because of you... ...but just because He loves to love... ...just because He has decreed to love... ...that doesn't sound very loving... But truthfully, this is the definition of love you are so desperate for. A love, a sovereign love that embraces you... ...not based upon what you have to offer. Therefore, get this, you don't have to keep offering that thing. Right? This is why so many marriages fail. Because love is based upon what you have to offer me. Because of your looks, because of your personality... ...because of your money, because of whatever. I will choose to love you. And then that spouse has to go into this crazy, crazy rat race of trying to keep that up. Can't get ugly. I can't lose my money. I can't lose my power. I can't lose my personality. It's why. It's because you're loved based upon what you have to offer. But if a spouse says, I love you. Why? Because. Because covenant. Because vow. Because. Oh, okay. There's freedom. There's freedom to be. There's freedom to struggle. And that's what God has done in his election. You don't have to keep offering what he chose to love. A love not motivated by something in you. Therefore, you better keep that up if you want to keep if you want him to keep loving you. Even if he loves you based upon your choice of him, you better keep choosing him. Better not doubt. Better not run away. You better keep choosing him because that's the foundation of love. But if God loves you because he has decreed. If God loves you because of predestination. Then the love of God is unfailing. Of course you and I are tough to love. But thankfully that's not the point. That's not what initiates his love. And that's certainly not what sustains his love. What sustains his love is the everlasting decrees of the almighty which means love is unfailing. So there is a humility. There is a humility that is brought out of this doctrine. And then there's an assurance, a confidence... that comes when we internalize this doctrine. Last one. We are resting, yet laboring. What do I mean by that? Um, resting, what is the doctrine of God's sovereignty over all things and even your salvation. What does that do? Well, it should let you know that God's in control of all things and it really should be the death of anxiety in your life. Wouldn't that be great? You laugh because you're all anxious messes. It should lead to rest. It should lead to peace. It should lead to Sabbath. But sadly, I see a lot of Calvinists just as crazy, stressed, and anxious as everyone else in this world. Because we haven't bought into the doctrine of God's sovereignty. We've bought into the doctrine of American productivity. That we've got to perform. Either we believe in the sovereignty of God or we don't. And often we don't. We give lip service to the sovereignty of God, but we don't practice it. All these crazy Calvinists running around like the, we're in charge. Like the world's on our shoulders. Like we're running things. Whether it be personal things like our children, our marriages, our friendships, our relationships, our callings, our careers. Our unbelieving friends and family members burdening us in unhealthy ways. Or on bigger scales like this church, this community, this nation, where it's heading. We confess that God is in charge and yet we are always freaking out. We functionally live like it's all on us. We have, we have to make this happen. If this is going to happen, we have to make this happen. We functionally live as if we are the sovereigns of our surroundings and you are not. And I'm the chief sinner here. You can always tell when my preaching gets louder is when I'm mad at myself. I can teach this lesson, but you will know I believe this lesson when you see a peace and a rest and a contentment from my life. When you see me renounce the modern lie that the senior pastor of a church is a mini-pope. And when you sense in me that I have the ability to just be still and know that God is my God. That Moses on the sea, the Lord will fight for you, you need only to be still. When I pastor you that way, and when you see that in my life, you'll know I'm becoming a Calvinist. And the same is true of the boundless cares and concerns in your life. Amazingly, so again, I'm, I'm, I'm not preaching to the choir, I'm rebuking the choir at this point. Amazingly, the Calvinist church in Lexington also happens to be the church filled with the most overachievers, workaholics, anxious, stressed, constantly living on the edge of a nervous breakdown, people. There's something off. There's something in the water, people. There's something wrong. Our doctrine has not taken over our life. Perhaps we need to practice our theology. Perhaps we need to not just say God is sovereign, but we could actually rest and say God is sovereign. I can go to bed tonight. All is well. He's running the universe, not me. But, not just rest, but laboring... I don't know how this looks, but somehow we are to be these people. Well, I do know how it looks. Six days you shall labor, seven days you shall rest. So that's how it works. But there should be this this laboring, there should be this working as unto the Lord with zeal... ...and yet this humble, restful, Sabbath rhythm to your life. But even in the work you're Sabbathing, even in the work you're resting, you're at peace... You know it's not under. But all I'm trying to say is this does not negate work. Here's what I would say because God ordains the end, we can rest. Because God ordains the means, we can labor. What happens to a doctrine of God's sovereignty? This came up a lot last week, right? When, when, when I was asked the, the typical questions of if God's sovereign in salvation, then why missions? Why evangelism? Why even pray? And what I try to get us out of there is that false dichotomy... ...that because God is sovereign over the ends... ...means, means that the means are, are useless and pointless. That He works through the means to accomplish His ends. That He's ordained it all from beginning to end. And so what it does is it doesn't negate the means... ...it infuses the, the means with power and significance and, and authority. So, so we flip it and say, I evangelize... ...because God has ordained that evangelism will bring in the elect. I pray because God has ordained that he will answer the prayers unto his decrees. We do missions because we believe God is at work in the world. If we didn't believe those things... ...if we didn't believe that God would raise the dead... ...that God intervenes in the affairs of human hearts... ...that he takes out hearts of stone and puts in hearts of flesh... ...then I would say, then uh, let's not worry about the means... ...because they're pointless... Why share if he can't do it? Why pray if he can't get involved? Why do any of this stuff? But because he is sovereign, it gives this... It it takes the mundane and it hallows it. It takes your day-to-day living and it infuses it with power and significant... ...and the outworking of eternal decrees. You know that? Tomorrow when you wake up, God has ordained for your life... ...to be instruments to eternity past decrees. That's pretty significant. So go to work. It infuses your life with purpose and significance. Everything you do matters... ...because everything you do... ...God is using for His sovereign purposes. Because of predestination... ...we labor in prayer. Because of predestination... We evangelize. Because of predestination, we pray and we disciple our children. Because of predestination, I go to work and do it as unto the Lord. It's because of these things that we can be confident that these things... We're not living insignificant, purposeless, meaningless lives. God's doing something. He's weaving together an intricate narrative that we can never understand. But He's doing something in your life at all times. Go and work hard as unto the Lord. But you do it as though it's God on His throne doing it. It's not on you. You don't have the pressure of running the world... ...but God is using you to run His world. It's this balance of rest and labor. Because God ordains the ends, we can rest. Because God has ordained the means, we can labor. So, listen. um, I'm done and um, perhaps... You feel as I felt after doing this is like, well, um, maybe I don't, maybe I don't get this doctrine as well as I thought. I just taught an entire five week lecture series, and then I look at the applications, and I think, well, there's something off. There's something off. Um, there, there's two things I'd say to that. Number one, I think the re- I think the disconnect between theology and practice. ...is primarily a result of a disconnect between um, you individually studying and community. Here's what I'm trying to say. Doctrine was never meant to be your personal studies... ...or even a study that just looks at doctrine. Okay? Okay? You have to do community right. So Calvinism needs to be fleshed out into community so that I will have somebody say to me, Hey, Robert, Calvinism is supposed to lead to humility. Man, yesterday I saw the way you were speaking to your wife and that just didn't look very humble. And I got to own that. So that community, so basically doctrinal studies, give it to the mind, a community brings it to life. Is what I'm trying to say. So you've got to live this stuff out. We don't just need to be a church that believes in Calvinism. We need to be a church in community living out Calvinism together. Because that would be my first application. That's, that's the practical application of how we can get this down into our hearts and lives more. Um, the second application I would say is it's okay because cause, cause God's in control. And you're allowed to struggle with these things. And you're allowed to be a bad example of what Calvinism looks like. And you're, about, you're allowed to misapply the applications. If Calvinism wasn't true, you wouldn't be allowed to do that. But Calvinism is true. God is sovereign. For the foundations of the world, he loved you. He knew you. He chose you in Christ. He justified you. He sanctified you. He will glorify you. God is at work. You can rest. It's okay. Sinner, it's okay. So you messed it up. Great. God's God's on the throne. He loves you. He's sovereign. You're okay. Now let's just rise up and repent in community. All right, let me pray. Lord, thank you for this time, this month. And I pray that it would be um, helpful and it would overflow into our lives. Not just in theory, but in practicalities. Lord, that we would be known as a church not just that believes this doctrine but practices this doctrine, and I readily admit that flows from the leadership of the church. So I pray for myself, I pray for the pastoral team, and I pray for our elders that we would embody what it looks like to live as a Calvinist. We can teach it, God. You've equipped us to do that. I pray we would show our congregation what it means to live this way and that the doctrine becomes sweet and beautiful and Because they see it in our lives. They see humility. They see confidence. They see rest and they see zeal. They see these tensions lived out that only your sovereignty can bring. Forgive us where we haven't done that. And I pray you would cultivate that more in our lives. Um, And as the chief repenter in my life, I pray. Um, And now, Lord, we go to worship you, the God of sovereign grace. Thank you. You have chosen us unto the praise of your glorious grace. And so we collectively praise your glorious, sovereign, free grace together. Thank you, Father, for ordaining our salvation. Thank you, Jesus, for accomplishing our salvation. Thank you, Spirit, for applying your salvation. Three in one, together at work to save your people. Hallelujah. We praise your name. Amen.